Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. Welcome to this special episode of Ed Infinitum. We're still between seasons two and three, but just like a few months ago when COVID-19 first forced schools to go to remote learning, I felt it was incumbent upon an education podcast like this one to take up the issue in some way. As we speak, schools across the nation are wrestling with the decision of whether and how to reopen their doors to students for September. As one of those many teachers preparing to begin this unprecedented new school year in the shadow of the COVID-19 pandemic, I've been consumed with both reading and writing tips and best practices for online and remote education. Preparing for this new world alone is an enormous task for teachers already grappling with all of the other stresses of our time. But as September draws ever nearer, I am feeling even more nervous and even less prepared about how to conduct in-person education in this new climate. Let's back up for a moment and review how we got here. In the early spring of 2020, the global pandemic of 2019 novel coronavirus caused by SARS-CoV-2, popularly referred to as COVID-19 or simply coronavirus, triggered the largest mass closures of schools since the influenza pandemics of the early 20th century. For the first time in a century, nearly all school children in the United States and around the world were unable to physically attend school. Unlike the case a century ago, the students of 2020 were able to continue their formal schooling through various digitally mediated remote learning technologies, particularly in America, where the federal government actively neglected preparation for COVID-19. Teachers, students, and families had very little notice and almost no time to prepare for the sudden shift from in-person to fully online learning. Despite over a thousand empirical studies of online teaching and learning over the last 30 years, the vast majority of teachers and students at the K-12 level did not possess high levels of facility or confidence in online learning modalities. A nationwide survey of more than 1,200 K-12 teachers conducted by the organization ClassTag revealed that more than half, 56.7%, felt insufficiently prepared, and almost that many felt they were essentially on their own to develop and employ that knowledge on the spot. Fewer than 20% perceived a consistent and clear message from their school leadership. Given that this transition process was so chaotic and uneven, with requirements that were contradictory and quick to change, and given disparities in terms of access to computers and internet between well-off students and those from disadvantaged backgrounds, it is a testament to the creativity and adaptability of educators, students, and families that distance learning in some form or another was consistently executed in most schools around the country. This severely less-than-ideal set of circumstances will surely be reflected in studies of the efficacy of this distance learning. Preliminary research already looks pretty grim, with a projection from the Oregon-based education research nonprofit NWEA of only 70% of expected learning gains for a typical year in reading, and only 50% in math. And that's for the so-called average student. Much greater learning loss is projected for those from more marginalized racial and socioeconomic groups. A survey of 849 teenagers conducted by Common Sense Media found that 41% claimed to have not attended a single online class during that period. This fear of learning loss is certainly part of the rationale for why federal and state governments are requiring schools to develop plans for both full and partial, or hybrid, returns to school. President Trump's six-word tweet on July 2nd, schools must open in the fall, was followed by a tweet from Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, quote, absolutely right at POTUS. Learning must continue for all students. American education must be fully open and fully operational this fall." End quote. So what does fully open and operational mean? Well, there's the rub. 
There is no body of research, no established set of best practices for in-person classroom instruction during a pandemic like this. An incomplete list of major issues teachers are trying to figure out right now in no particular order includes setting up our classrooms in a way that accounts for disinfection and hazardous material handling, somehow figuring out how to conduct class activities without ever bringing students closer than six feet from one another, how to conference with students or intervene in discipline situations from that distance, how to cover required content and meet student learning goals when classes might be meeting only half or one-third as frequently as usual, how to include and teach entirely online and remote versions of every lesson for absent students, how to find ways to catch up students who miss large amounts of school, and, of course, figuring out how to emotionally support students and ourselves who are terrified during this time. And remember, this is all based on a best-case scenario, assuming our schools don't become viral hot zones within days. While Sweden and Japan reopened schools without that happening, Israel's reopening saw infections rise dramatically, with over 2,000 new COVID cases among students in the first few weeks, 130 in one school alone, forcing reclosures. Israel's public health director actually resigned in protest over the government ignoring her predictions that just the sort of thing would happen. Similarly ignored predictions were also fulfilled in the USA, when several states, including Florida, Texas, Georgia, Ohio, and Tennessee, reopened businesses and facilities far less jam-packed than schools, causing intense spikes in infections. Guidance from the CDC, or Centers for Disease Control, has been general and pretty vague, in the form of recommendations like, quote, physical distancing in classrooms, healthy hygiene habits, cleaning and disinfection, use of cloth face coverings, and staggering student schedules, end quote. The CDC actually had slightly more specific and stringent guidelines before President Trump ordered them to scale back, apparently because he deemed these guidelines to be too onerous and costly to follow. Now, neither President Trump nor the CDC really has control over how schools will or won't reopen. Unlike in Sweden, Japan, or almost every other country, there is no singular authority governing American school operations. I may have mentioned this fact in, I don't know, every episode ever of this podcast. Every state, and in many cases, including my own state of Massachusetts, every school district is making its own decisions about reopening. Six feet of separation in one school, three feet in the school one town over. Some districts plan to have more relaxed precautions in their elementary schools only, citing a South Korean study that suggests smaller children are less likely to transmit the virus, and possibly ignoring the study's caveats about the problem of accounting for asymptomatic infections and transmissions. And some aren't. The president of the New Hampshire Teachers Union summed it up pretty succinctly when she said, quote, We had hoped for a set of minimum safety standards for all schools to achieve before they were safe to reopen. Instead, we received pages of shoulds, not shalls. End quote. Whatever guidelines get set might not even be followed, just because kids are kids, or because millions of Americans still reject the value of wearing masks, or say they'll refuse a vaccination for COVID even once one is developed, or oppose mandatory testing. It is no surprise that a growing number of teachers' preparations for the school year have begun to involve making out their wills. So, no. I will not be writing, nor will I take seriously, any guide for in-person teaching this fall. Now, I do understand the push for in-person return. The CDC guidelines contain lengthy justifications for school reopenings, all of which I take seriously. They cite a well-established body of research indicating that remote teaching results in worse learning outcomes than in-person classes, that students' social and emotional health benefit from the support of an in-person school environment, and that's especially true for our most vulnerable populations, like students with severe special needs, low-income situations, etc. 
I take seriously the anguished pleas by parents of their neediest students to return them to the in-person services they require and are legally entitled to. The CDC also reminds us that schools play a critical role in the well-being of the communities they serve. Not mentioned, but kind of obvious, is the reality that parents and guardians across the nation rely on schools for childcare while they're at work. I get all of that. I truly do. But at the same time, none of these goals, learning, socio-emotional and community support, even childcare, can be met if COVID-19 is running rampant through schools, sickening and perhaps even killing students, their teachers, and their families. How can remote learning, for all of its many drawbacks, not be universally regarded as the lesser of two evils? The way it's looking now, it seems many districts will try for aiming for the middle with some sort of hybrid plan involving some time in school and some time remotely for different groups of students on different rotation schedules, but this still constitutes exposure for millions of people. I worry that these hybrid plans will result in more infections whereupon schools will close and go to 100% remote learning anyway, and then district and local leaders will be able to say, see, we tried sacrificing people's lives just to gain that political insurance. To be fair, it is not often that these kinds of public officials have life-and-death decisions in their hands, but the fact remains that this time, they do. Any degree of in-person reopening forces parents and teachers alike to face the impossible choice of their jobs or their health, even their lives, or the health and lives of their children. We should not be in this position. This is the time for something we don't see enough of in our education leadership or in our leadership in general, taking a clear and principled stand and being willing to suffer political consequences if need be. I'm adding my voice as a so-called expert, as a teacher, as a parent, and as a citizen to call for a 100% online 2020 to 2021 school year, at least until a vaccine or significant treatment is developed. There are no good decisions here, but there is a right decision, and the only best practice for the fall is to demand of our elected officials that they provide the most robust economic and learning supports they can to a school population that is staying home this year. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great! Here's your education fun fact for the episode. Well, not so fun a fact this week. About 56.6 million students in the United States, a part of 1.1 billion students globally, were unable to attend school in the wake of the COVID-19 closures this past spring. Let's hope for a vaccine or other effective treatment soon. Stay safe and healthy out there. Bye-bye.